Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning, friends. You've made it. This is the last week in an Asking for a Friends series. Uh, Last week, Pastor Adam talked to us about the Bible, and as he did so, he gave us some frameworks that can help us read our Bibles better. We also had the extra treat of hearing from uh, one of the assistant directors of The Chosen named Jordan, and he talked about the ways the cast and crew work hard to bring the scriptures to life. This week, we are going to talk about the church. And I've already gotten a variety of different questions and some thoughts on what this might be about from the question that went out in the buzz, uh, which is this, why go to church when church can come to me? Before we jump in, I want to give a bit of a caveat here, a bit of a warning or, um, I, I mean, I don't know how to put it. If you join us online, For social distancing purposes, particularly if you have any underlying health concerns or issues thereof, please know that we at Redeemer entirely support your decision in that, and we would not want to discourage you from that. So please don't hear anything I'm about to say in that type of vein so that your decision feels challenged or threatened. For the rest of us, those that are online and those of us that are in the room, I suspect that this sermon is about to step on your toes. It just is. It stepped on my toes when I was preparing for it, as I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about what does it mean to be the church for the last 12 years in a pretty intense way. Uh, And this sermon is a reflection of those thoughts, even some of my haunts, what I'm about to do is try to not vent or not uh, have you drink from a fire hose. So I will do my best in that regard. I I don't want us to be overwhelmed. I want to step on our toes intentionally, not unintentionally. That said, let's, let's jump in. Why go to church when church can come to me? It's a question that takes seriously the developments of ministry and strong online presence of many ministries and churches because of the pandemic. Sure, there were already quality TV ministry opportunities that we could watch or take advantage of, but for the most part, these were not of our church with our worship team and our pastors. They weren't our community. And so that's different. Uh, Now, because of needing to do church virtually through the pandemic, Most churches have developed and maintained a live stream of worship that's very quality. And in many of those churches, the sound and the video are so good that it's almost like you're actually in the room. Um, Redeemer is one of those churches. If you've never viewed our online stream, I'd encourage you maybe ironically, uh, to check it out. Uh, It is so well done. Uh, It sounds like you're here uh, and it's amazing. However, 
We've kind of worked ourselves into a problem in the United States. It's so good online that many Americans have chosen to stay in their PJs rather than coming to in-person church. Pew Research uh, Center, uh, they're a place that does a lot of um, research and data development uh, for the church. They show that only 67% of all regular church attenders pre-pandemic have joined kind of post-pandemic. This research is not old. And by old, I mean it's not coming from 2020, 2021. It's coming late 2022. So this is information that's pretty fresh within the last six months, that 33% or so of regular church attenders have not come back after the pandemic. And I'm sure there's a lot of things uh, involved in that decision-making process. Um, And of course, one of them is a convenience factor. It's inescapable, it's there. But these statistics communicate a bigger issue for the American church than simply an attendance problem. I think honestly what it does is exposes a bigger issue uh, that's been going on for decades, um, longer than decades. The online experience of church, if we're honest with ourselves, really isn't very much different than the in-person version of church. Sure, we might have five, 10 minutes worth of conversations coming in the door, and we might have five or 10 minutes of conversations going out the door. I don't want to cheapen those. Those are important and those are meaningful, but it is a hard way to develop enduring transformative community. It just is. And I think over time, we have inadvertently gotten too narrow of an understanding or too small of an understanding of what it means to do church. Um, I think society and that 33% have only taken us up on an offer that we've been trying to make available to them for a long time, which is to make church as convenient and comfortable and costless as possible. And as I said, this problem isn't new. Online church only makes it more visible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made some of the same observations 86 years ago. Feel how relevant this quote is from 86 years ago. Now, I will say Bonhoeffer's a deep thinker. The quote's not very straightforward, and we're going to explain the quote uh, after we get into it. And you'll probably hear me butcher French a little bit in the middle. My apologies. Uh, The antithesis between the Christian life and the life of the bourgeois respectability is at an end. The Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world, And as the world, in being no different from the world, in fact, in being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. The upshot of the upshot of it all, upshot, I can't, I'm not butchering French, I'm butchering English. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer to try and follow Christ. For cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship has freed me from that. So Bonhoeffer, what he's commenting on here is the state of the church as he's witnessed it, which is this. 
that the church has boiled down to an hour a week of attendance. And apart from that hour a week, that the rest of everyone's lives that's going to church remain fundamentally unchanged from everyone else's. And Bonhoeffer goes, I have a problem with that. And if you read The Cost of Discipleship, which is a hard book to read, but very worthwhile at the time, uh, he outlines in the first couple of chapters this notion of cheap grace, which he says is this, is just accepting the salvation of grace or, of, of grace or Jesus as kind of a fire insurance. And to say, now because of Jesus, I can kind of do whatever I want and he's gonna forgive me of all of my sins and I don't have to worry about any of this. And for Bonhoeffer, it's a tragedy because here in that type of environment, what's lost is this thought that we are Christians. We believe in Christ, not for fire insurance per se, but so that we might be transformed so that we might follow in the footsteps of Christ. And such a journey ultimately does necessarily mean that I must be intentional about walking with him. I must be his apprentice. I must be his disciple. In the last 90 years, I don't think much has changed. I think online options only highlight a problem that's been here for a while. So I want to toss out the statement as a starting point for our conversation this morning. On Sundays, we go to a building for worship. We don't go to church because we are the church. I'm going to say that again. There's a lot hung up in this. On Sundays, we go to a building for worship. We don't go to church because we are the church. I'd even argue a little bit that we need to stop talking about the language of I'm going to church because I think it only filters back into the whole problem that we're talking about because we are the church. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. He takes residence in us and connects us and unites us together. And so I think what it means to be the church has much more to do with our Monday through Saturday than it does our Sunday morning. We're going to lean into that a little bit this morning. So to answer or to get at not going to church because we are the church, we have to ask this fundamental question, right? What does it mean to be the church or what is the church? To answer that question, let's start by defining the word church. The Greek word that we translate as church is this word called ekklesia, and it occurs about 120 times in the New Testament, and 63 or so of those uses are from Paul. And Paul was the earliest writer of the New Testament. Paul uses the word in the introduction to his earliest letter, which is either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians. It depends on what scholar you want to listen to. But here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Here's what we read. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From our reading, that's not a radical statement, but here's why. Here's why it's fundamentally important. Ekklesia literally means called out ones or assembly. It's two Greek words put together uh, to make a new word. But here's why the statement's radical, why this verse is radical. I find it very interesting that Paul borrowed from something that was already established in Greek culture rather than borrowing from something that was already established in Jewish culture. And here's what I mean. The word synagogue 
described a religious center of worship for Jews in these communities. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have grown up going to the synagogue. It would have been foundational for his community and his development and his understanding of Scripture. However, ecclesia, the word we translate as church, has no roots in Judaism whatsoever. It's all Greco-Roman. It's a concept plucked from that culture and rather redefined for Paul's purposes. And so I find it fascinating that Paul wouldn't grab from something that would have been common or already common knowledge to most of these early Jewish Christians. He could have called it something like the synagogue of Jesus if he wanted to make a little bit of a difference or something like that, but he doesn't. In my preparation for this week, one scholar suggested that Paul does this because the term synagogue came to be regarded as the symbol of the Jewish legal religion. A word with such connotations could not make up the center point of the Christian faith. It couldn't be a proclamation of freedom from the law in the middle of something that was all about the law. This is no small matter. This is actually a big matter, a big matter of consequence. Paul favored the term church to describe this new gathering of people in order that he could shape it from the very core, from the basement up, so that we did not get hung up in what were some of the trappings of religious, religiousness, religiosity, or legalism. I wonder how well Paul would think that we have maintained the difference or the nuance that he fought and was persecuted so very hard for. It seems to me that the church has inadvertently slipped back into religion over relationship and rules over love. Now that's not to say there shouldn't be an order to our worship. Paul says there should be. Nor is that to suggest that Jesus doesn't expect our obedience. Paul in Romans chapter one also says that we should. I'm simply suggesting that when we turn the cross into religion and rules, we have become self-righteous and therefore toxic. Let us not forget that the primary theme of Jesus's teaching was that the kingdom of God was here and now. To be a church then means to embrace not only Jesus's message about the kingdom of God, but to participate in it and to lead others into it. So let's talk about what it means to participate in God's kingdom. Now I framed up in the middle of two headings, participating in God's kingdom and leading people into God's kingdom with six we are statements. These are like vision statements, statements for us to embody. If we're going to lean into participating in the kingdom for all it's worth, we have to take on a new identity. You know, the new creation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. We have to put it on for ourselves and adopt something that's very different from what we see in our day to day. So we're gonna lean into these we are statements. To participate in God's kingdom means that we are to live under King Jesus. The gospel is news, first and foremost, about a kingdom and a king that reigns. That king's name is Jesus. In other words, what we must learn how to do is to submit our will to Jesus's will. 
That's very easy to say. It's not so easy to do. And here's why. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, humans have become like God, but not like God in a good way. And like God, knowing good and evil. And what is meant there is that the effects of sin leaves us desiring to decide for ourselves, to make proclamations for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And then we build the framework of our lives around what we think is good and around what we think is evil. And our conscience only works to support those ideals. Practically speaking, it means that we act on what either feels good to us or makes sense to us. Instead, we are to be a people defined by laying down our will and our definitions of what good is and to pick up God's definition of what good is. And we do that by engaging our scriptures learning the character of God, reading them deeply, understanding the nature of who he is, learning what this kingdom values so that we can embody it now today because his kingdom is here and now. As we do that, then we must realize that we are called to be an alternative culture. In my several years of ministry, I have heard pastors and lay leaders suggest that we are to be influencing culture. To me, there's a fundamental problem with this thought of influencing culture. It suggests that contemporary culture is only mildly off course. The reality is that if the culture has not submitted itself to King Jesus, if it's not submitting what is good to King Jesus, then it is not mildly off course. It is tragically off course. Instead, it has turned into an idolatry factory, giving us temptations to worship other things, including ourselves, more than Jesus. It's as if we think we can sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of culture and that's gonna fix the problem. Here's the difficulty there. To presume that one truth is going to make all of the lies that we hold so deeply in our hand will make it all right is foolishness. It does not. We have to let them go and hold on to the one truth. Simply adding one truth of a handful of lies does not override all the other lies. Jesus is the truth. He is the life, period. No rival, no equal, no other things compare. Nothing else can try to compete with him. Therefore, the church is meant to be a culture reflective of Jesus's values, As a community, our culture must reflect grace and love and justice and peace because that's what our king values. That's what he does. Additionally, we are to be an indwelling fellowship. The gospel of Jesus is fundamentally about the restoration of relationship. First, our relationship with God, but also our relationships with one another, the people to your right and to your left. We can have a deep, abiding abiding relationship with God and with one another. And if I'm being completely honest, I think this is one of the glaring weaknesses of the American church today. It's where we're functioning too closely to the rest 
of culture. I think it's also why 33% of regular church attenders have stayed virtual instead of returning to worship. We're not truly about fellowship with one another. Otherwise, if we were, there would be a severe loss about not joining us back in person. But we've made it so close and so comfortable for the average churchgoer. Where's the loss for them? Where's the value proposition loss? For the most part, on a Sunday morning, our fellowship could be described as a couple of conversations coming in the door and a couple of conversations going out the door. I don't think that that talks about an abiding, indwelling relationship. It's really not that much better during the rest of the week either. That's not the type of fellowship that the early church had. They did life together as a real community of believers. It's why they called themselves brothers and sisters. It was the best way to describe their relationship with one another. To do life as a real community means reorienting our priorities. It means loss. It means a change in values. It means sacrifice. As we recall, one of the first not good statements made in scripture comes in Genesis chapter two, where God says, it is not good for a human to be alone. Somehow we've ignored that one a little bit. How well do we actually heed that warning? I'd argue probably not much. So how do we do better? I think the answer to that question is that we need to elevate fellowship as one of the core values of who we are and what we do and one of the fundamental differences between us and the culture around us. Furthermore, because you know, I know you wanted more. We had to do more. We are to live like free people. We're called to live like free people. The gift of grace in Jesus Christ was costly. It cost a lot. Jesus humbled himself to take on flesh and took on a death more horrendous than most of us could ever imagine. And all so that we could be freed from sin. Therefore, we are to live like free people. Paul put it this way in Romans 6, 11 to 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey, obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, I want to make a quick statement about that. That is not a command to live perfectly. But here's what it's saying. So it's not to say that you're not going to mess up ever again. Of course we are. We're sinful. We have a human nature that we're wrestling with. But we're called not to give up. We're called not to give in. We're called not to revert back to being a slave because we're a slave no longer. We're free. Now let's switch gears a bit and talk about leading people into God's kingdom. It's the other part of being a part of God's kingdom. Now, obviously, these categories aren't progressive in the way that I'm talking about them. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of messiness. And they all go on at the same time. But I didn't know how to, like, invite you into a swirling mess of a conversation. So they appear progressive. Um, we have to begin the journey of leaning into God's kingdom of God. Because otherwise, if we're not on that journey, we can't lead other people into God's kingdom. We cannot take them on a journey that we're not on ourselves. 
We can't take them somewhere we haven't gone. And to lead people into God's kingdom, we must first realize and understand that we are a dwelling place for God. Revelation 21 and 22 gives a beautiful picture of what God has been up to for all time. And 23.1 puts it this way, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his God and God himself will be with them and be their God. There is going to be a grand fulfillment of that promise, but it also is fulfilled in many ways in the here and now. The Holy Spirit who is God has been poured out on the church. He's present here and now. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we're an ambassador of Christ. Ambassador carries the same full weight, authority, and responsibility of the person they represent. So in this way, when someone encounters you, they should feel like they encountered the very kingdom of God. It's what should happen. It should be the resultant of having had engagement with us. We are called to mediate God's presence and his Holy Spirit to the world. Lastly, we are to act out of love. What might it look like to be a community that was better well known for what we are for than what we are against? What might that look like? Tertullian, an early church leader and theologian, wrote this next statement around 200 AD. It's a time period when the church was being brutally persecuted and you could very realistically lose your life for saying, I believe in Jesus. Here's what he said. But it is mainly the deeds of love, so noble, that lead many, that is the Romans, to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. But themselves, the Romans, are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another. For they, themselves, will sooner put to death. Think about that for a moment. Think about what it would be like to be a part of a movement so defined by even the ones that were persecuting you as love that it conquered the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. The greatest gift, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, is love. How much do we lean into that? Our earliest Christian brothers and sisters demonstrated what it looked like to be an alternative culture formed first and foremost by a posture of love through their acts of self-sacrifice. There's also stories about the Christians being the first ones to run into things like the Baponic Plague or otherwise, things where they go, this is gonna be messy, this is gonna be painful and it's gonna hurt. We're going anyway because we're a kingdom outpost. And God needs, God, these people need to have God's love communicated to them. What might it look like that our culture could say such things about us? This sounds like hard work. I don't really like hearing it myself, but here's the thing. Jesus offers us the opportunity to embrace our fullest humanity, to live in the ways that we were truly created to be. It might seem like it costs a lot, 
However, if we lean in, we realize that despite everything it costs us, Jesus is more than worth it. I think we'll come to find that we traded in a bunch of lies for the most precious truth of all time. A truth, a freedom, a love that reverberates for all eternity. We can participate in eternity today. Let's lean in. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us for those moments when we might not be an accurate reflection of what your kingdom is as a body. Lord, help us to lean in in participation of your kingdom in the good news that is your son. Help others when they encounter us to have such a real and tangible experience of you that they are left to ponder the awe and the wonder of who you are and want more. Lord, help us to be a kingdom people about your mission, to be an embodiment of your grace and your love and your mercy and your peace and your justice for people around us that so desperately need us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected with all that God is doing here at Redeemer, you can visit RedeemerTulsa.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Have a blessed week.